All right, good morning, H2O. Good morning. If you guys could find your seat, that would be great. Um, whenever I'm up here and I see people greeting each other, I'm just continually reminded of how you know, cool it is to be in a community of people that enjoy spending time with each other. Um, I feel like as a church, uh, we don't, no, no, we're not fake about that. Like, we actually like each other and are friends, you know. I'm not saying we never had any beef with anybody before, but um, it's a cool community. And it's good to be a part of. Um, it was awesome worshiping with you this morning. Um, I know a lot of us were at conference this past weekend, right? Like, like we were at conference yesterday. And uh, I'm sure some of you got more sleep than others. I was the last one in my room and the first one up, so my sleep was limited, uh, which is not super helpful for, you know, preaching on a Sunday morning, but I'm going to try to fight through it. Does that sound good? Um, I hope you were encouraged by conference itself. It's funny because each of the sermons, so there was three sermons, each of them was kind of related to what I'm going to talk about this morning. So at first, you're kind of, the temptation is to be like, oh man, like they're already saying what I'm going to say, like what's the point? But actually what happens is I think is that it reinforces what God wants to teach us. So I'm hoping that's what happens this morning, uh, that what I am communicating to you guys reinforces what God is just trying to teach our church and our network. Um, and that's the goal. Now, if you've been around, hopefully you know that we're doing a sermon series. Um, it's the idea of kingdom culture. What does it mean to be living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven and not as citizens of this world? Uh, if you were here last week, you may remember Grant talked about unity. Uh, unity is really important, and I'm hoping uh, that this message is going to build off of that a little bit. So this morning, we're going to be talking about discipline and a culture of laziness. Discipline and a culture of laziness. Now, I don't know what comes to your guys' mind when you think of those words, but the term laziness probably brings something, something to mind. And so for me, it's, it's, it's the same. You know, there's some things that come to my mind. So I've got some images for us. I just want to walk through. So this first image we have up here is going to pop up. Okay, all right, so we've got a guy eating cheese puffs, laying on the couch, playing Wii Sports. So he's playing tennis or bowling or whatever he's doing, but his effort is this. And I know, I know that some of us have done that before. Like, I remember when I was in Japan, uh, my supervisor, his youngest son had uh, a skill in Wii Sports. And we would play tennis, and his skill was just do this, like that, and he would beat me. And I was like, I play tennis. I'm like, come on. I'm like trying to do like the whole stroke and stuff. And he would just do this. And his little character would just do like that. And he would beat me. And it was very infuriating because he's three. You know, like that's like, come on. Uh, I'm not three if you're not aware. Okay, so maybe that's the kind of idea that comes to mind is the, the, the guy laying down on the couch. All right, we got another picture. Okay. All right, if you're a Parks and Rec fan, I know there's probably a few of you guys. Um, April Ludgate here. Uh, she has one, I think two goals in life. Um, one is to be as sarcastic as possible, and two is to not accomplish anything at work. In fact, I think her main goal is to make work less than zero. Uh, I think that's her main goal. And so when you think of laziness, maybe you think of somebody who's just, you know what, they come to work and they're trying to literally do negative things. Like they're trying to make everybody else's work worse, and I think that's what she does. Okay, all right, next photo here. Okay, yes. Jabba the Hutt, for you Star Wars fans. Um, so Jabba, his deal is he's evil, he's a criminal, um, but he doesn't actually do anything. He just tells other people what to do, and they carry out all his dirty work. As you can tell, he's not very mobile. Um, he just kind of lays there. He, his only actions are to put food in his mouth and hit a button that makes somebody drop down so they get killed by like a giant 
monster thing. Okay, so his, his goal is just to make other people do all the work. Okay, so I would say that's relatively lazy. All right, next one. Okay, yes, yes. This is my favorite show. Uh, it's called Seinfeld. Um, and this guy is George Costanza. And unfortunately, I actually, he reminds me of me a little bit, which is definitely not a good thing. Um, but it, he works for the New York Yankees, which is pretty cool. Um, but he's so lazy that he built a bed underneath his desk so he could sneak naps at work. Okay, so he has a pillow down there, some magazines, a thermos. Um, it's pretty incredible. So that's what he's doing. He's, he's trying to check it out the scene. He's trying to sneak down under his desk and take a nap. All right, what we got next? Oh, yes, yes. Just humanity in, in the movie Wally. Okay, if you've seen Wally, a great movie. Uh, literally all of humanity, they just lay around and they watch a screen. Now, if that's a little bit, you know, too close to home, I apologize, but that's what they do. They just lay around and watch the screen. Now, just to be clear, Wally over here, who's amazing, is definitely not lazy. He works hard all the time. Uh, but these guys, they just sit there and they watch the screen to the point where interaction is almost impossible. Okay? All right, I think I have one more. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, for me, the, when I think of laziness, the first thing I think of is my cat napping in front of a photo of herself. Um, that is exactly what's happening right there. So that's Camry Bub Perkle, and uh, that is a picture of her. And she's like, you know what? I just lay around all the time. And, and I think, you know, cats are lazy. What are you going to do? All right. Thanks, Ben. You can take those off. Um, all right. Now, the word discipline could bring up a number of ideas in our head, just like the word laziness could. And that's because it has multiple meanings. For me, I think of my parents disciplining me when I did something wrong. And maybe you have a specific way that worked for you, but for me, I think of road trips. Okay, my mom and my dad, they'd be in the front seat. My brother and I would be in the back seat driving along. And as would typically occur, a debate would arise out of the back seat as to which side was whose side and are you on their side, you know? So I'm on the left side, my brother's on the right side. I'm like, bro, you're on my side. He's like, no, 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 you're on my side. I'm like, no, look, the middle line is right there. The side of your foot is right there. You're on my side. And the, and the debate would continue. And eventually, it would escalate to the point where my dad would just reach around the back seat and just grab my leg and just pinch it really hard, okay? And that got your attention. So I don't know how your parents did that for you, but that, that was my situation. Um, now, for us today, I want to clarify what we're talking about when we talk about discipline and laziness. When you think of laziness, you may think of that cheese puff eating guy trying to play Wii Sports laying on the couch. Um, and, you know, the, the Bible actually does say something about that. Um, Proverbs 22:13 says, "The slacker says there is a lion outside. I'll be killed in the public square." Now, if that's confusing to what that means, what's happening here is the slacker or the sluggard, as some translations say, is making up fantastical excuses as to why they shouldn't leave their house and go to work. Now, of course, this is not a good thing. Okay, that is condemned as lazy, but I actually don't think that's the type of laziness that our culture encourages. Nor do I think this is the type of laziness that we as a church primarily struggle with. Now, again, I'm sure we've all sat around all day eating Oreos and pizza. Okay, that's happened before. I've done it before. But if we're doing that every single day, you know, maybe make some changes in your life. But again, I don't really think that's what we're struggling with. And we'll come back to that in a second. When it comes to discipline, we're actually not going to be talking about a dad reaching around and pinching the fire out of his son's leg. We're not going to be talking about a coach that makes the team run laps because you kept turning the ball over in basketball. Uh, we're actually not going to be talking about God disciplining his people. Today we're going to discuss discipline in the framework of spiritual discipline and self-control. 
How are we as followers of Jesus restraining our own impulses, emotions, and desires to be consistent with God's design and purpose for our lives? Let me say that again. How are we as followers of Jesus restraining our own impulses, emotions, and desires to be consistent with God's design and purpose for our lives? The word discipline comes from the Latin word discipulus, which means pupil. This is also the base word we get the word disciple, which I find interesting. I'm looking forward to sharing with you guys this morning. I'm hopeful that what I have to say and communicate is from the Lord and is going to be helpful for us as a church. Uh, let's pray and get started. Father God, thanks so much for today. Uh, thank you for these people. Thank you for this church. Uh, thank you for those who have been around for a long time. Thank you for those that maybe this is their first time visiting. Lord, I pray that we would see your character and your goodness. And Lord, that we would see how as part of your creation, people made in your image, Lord, that you desire us to respond to you. And Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now this morning we're going to look at a passage that a lot of you guys are going to be familiar with. Um, and I would imagine as you've read this passage, lots of things have come to mind, but I don't know that many of us have actually thought about it through this lens. So if you would, take your Bible or your phone or whatever you guys have, and it'll be on the screen if you don't have one. But I would recommend turning to Genesis chapter 3 um, because we're going to be revisiting that throughout the sermon. Okay, I'm going to read it, but then we're going to be referencing it again. So Genesis chapter 3, it's the first book of the Bible. After the table of contents, uh, you should come up on Genesis. Now, the setup for today is really beautiful. Okay, so God has created the world and everything in it. And he decides to create humanity in his own image. He plants a garden specifically for human beings to live and work and watch over. He intimately forms and breathes life into the first man. Then when no helper is found that corresponds to him, God takes part of the man and crafts the first woman. When God introduces them to each other, the man says, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman because she was taken for man. And here we have it. Man and woman living together in perfect harmony. No sin, no sickness, side by side, free. It's pretty cool. But unfortunately, that doesn't last super long. So as we read our passage today, I want us to think about our topic today of discipline. And let's just kind of think about what that might have to say and inform us in that area. Now I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's kind of long, but it's one flow one story and I think it's going to be helpful for us. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God cried out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. 
Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you're accursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. You will des- your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground by which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim in the flaming, whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. That's the word of the Lord. Now, there are many things we could discuss from this passage. It's not a, it's not a hype passage. It's a hard passage. I know that. Um, but I do want to keep it in the context of our series on kingdom culture and specifically the area of discipline and self-control. Whenever we look at a passage of Scripture, I think we can immediately jump to the question of how does this apply to me and my life today? And this is obviously an important question and one worth considering, but oftentimes it's more important to ask what is happening to the people in the text and how does it apply to them? And this will actually better inform us about how it might apply to us. Thinking about who's in the text, let's start with God. I think that's generally a good place to start whenever we study the Bible. It's like, what's it saying about God? Here we see that God gives specific guidance that directs us in making our choices. God told Adam not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve knew this and was able to communicate it, but when presented with the choice, they both gave in to temptation. We've all experienced similar situations. We're presented an opportunity to do something that we know we shouldn't. We do it anyway. Second, God is intentional in his relationships. God planted this garden specifically for these people he had made. God put in the garden, he put it in a place that was easily accessible to himself. God spent time with him. He does this even after they directly disobey him. God comes and seeks after them, even though they hide from God. So God is intentional. God is also full of grace and compassion. God has every right to kill Adam and Eve immediately, but he doesn't. I believe he gives them an opportunity to repent even though they don't take him up on it. He substantially upgrades their wardrobe, right? Do you notice they've made these little fig leaves, this little sad ensemble for themselves, and and God makes them leather garments. He removes them from the garden, but he continues to provide for them despite the consequences they have brought on themselves. And not only in this passage do we see God, we also see a serpent. 
Now, the text is, actually does not give us much information about the serpent, but we do see that it's cunning. The temptation presented by the serpent is actually an appeal for independence from God. It says to the human beings, it says, In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. The suggestion is that God is holding something back that's good for them. God says the consequences are negative, but actually, you know, they're actually positive. They're actually good for you. That's, that's how the temptation goes. Now, to be very clear, freedom is a good thing. And God offers us freedom through Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection. But independence from God, which indicates some level of separation from God, is not good. However, our society elevates autonomy and independence. This hasn't always been true in all cultures, in all times, in all places, but Western culture has placed such an important view on independence that anything that would limit it is seen as oppressive. Have you guys ever seen the movie The Matrix, or at least heard of it? A few of you guys, probably some of you guys, I don't know, you know. Um, yeah, so in The Matrix, uh, and there's going to be some spoilers, I'm just telling you, it's been out since I think like 1999, so if you haven't seen it yet, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, the machines have taken over. And the humans are used essentially as batteries to run everything. In order to accomplish this, there is an intricate simulated reality called the matrix. And this matrix distracts humans from the reality that's true. Originally, the matrix was a utopian world with no problems. But it broke down because humans just couldn't buy that things would be so good. It wasn't believable enough. So the new and improved matrix is filled with problems and brokenness and pain. This is so humans will feel more at home. As Ronald Simpkins, who's a professor at Creighton University, puts it, as appealing as paradise might be, this is not the world in which humans live, nor is it the world in which humans prefer to live. Other scholars and thinkers propose that Adam and Eve actually didn't sin. In fact, that they should be praised because after eating of the fruit, they gain freedom from the bondage of naivety. Now, I hope we know that actually none of this is true. The sin of man didn't change God, didn't change his sovereignty, it didn't jeopardize God's role, status, or character. Instead, it put humanity into slavery. We now experience the brokenness and painful reality of sin. Now, this leads us back to the idea of discipline in a culture of laziness. I want to look at Adam and Eve and reflect on some things they can teach us by their choices. For our purposes today, I want to consider laziness in a way that I believe is prevalent in our culture. And that's not a slothful resentment of work like the guy on the couch with the cheese puffs and the Wii controllers. But it's a hesitant to be intentional, a desire for the easy way out, an avoidance of conflict, a refusal to take responsibility. Let's call it passivity. Okay, what can we learn? The first thing we need to learn from Adam and Eve is that sometimes we need to say no. The serpent presents an attractive opportunity. Eat of this fruit and you will attain knowledge. And this knowledge will make you like God. That sounds good, right? But as Eve has already stated, eating of the fruit has a consequence, and that's death. Hindsight being what it is, we could all say, Eve, stop, what are you doing? Don't do that. That's going to screw everybody. You know, like, no. But are we so sure that we would have made a different decision? 
How many times have we presented a choice that we know is going to have negative consequences because we've either experienced it ourselves or a reliable source tells us so, but we do it anyway? We lie. We go to that website. We make unhealthy food choices. We drink too much. We gossip. We slander. Why do we do it? It's because we feel like it's going to give us some benefit no matter how temporary and fleeting. Maybe we think... It's only going to hurt me, nobody else, so why does it matter? But how could Eve have possibly known how her decision was going to impact us in Cincinnati in 2023? Our sin hurts us, it hurts those around us, and it has the potential to hurt people in the future. That's what Paul tells us. He says the wages of sin is death. Now the next thing we need to learn is sometimes silence is a good thing. Sometimes silence is a bad thing. Uh, So every semester when we do the well, we have a Saturday that's called Silence and Solitude Saturday. And in that, a group of people will go out by the river and just have time, extended time with God. You can read the Bible, you can pray, um, you can reflect and journal and meditate. You can just look at God's creation and worship. This is a really good kind of silence. Or maybe you have a friend who's in pain Maybe they're sick or hurting or they've lost a loved one. They don't know what to do. And you just go and sit with them and listen. Try to be there for them. And just your presence is what they need. That's a really good kind of silence. But here in our passage, Adam gives us an example of bad silence. God gave him the command to not eat of the tree. Adam communicated that to Eve. And she was able to restate this. But as she pressed in to disobey God, Adam said nothing. Both Adam and Eve are culpable for their choices. But you know who Paul puts the onus of sin on? It's Adam. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sin. Eve may have eaten the fruit first, but Adam was right there. He didn't try to stop her. And she was the very person who was supposed to care for and protect. But he didn't do it. Again, how often do we do this? Whether it be our spouse or our friend or our family member, fellow Christian, we sit by in silence, not willing to intervene because it's easier just to sit. It's not as complicated. Now, don't hear me say that we have license to just spout off our mouth whenever we want, say whatever we want, whatever comes to our mind, just say it. We should use wisdom. The book of Proverbs talks a lot about this. I, I personally remind you every time I go to Proverbs, like, oh, wait, actually waiting to speak is oftentimes the, the wise thing. But there are types of relationships that bear the right to confront, whether it be marriage, a parent-child, student-teacher, a friendship, or brother and sisters in Christ. We have the right and need to confront sometimes. Now, just to be clear, this confronting should never be just for the sake of conflict or to belittle someone else or puff us up, but for the well-being of each other. Now, something else we need to learn from our text today is that sin has consequences. I know you're like, bro, we're at church. We know sin has consequences. But, okay, just give me a second. Okay, in the end of Genesis 2, right before our text today, it tells us that both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. This is a picture of innocence and delight. But then after the fruit is eaten, we see that the eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked. 
And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is a very different picture of awareness and shame. They're aware of their nakedness and they feel exposed. After this, God is walking in the garden, but what did Adam and Eve do? They hide. God asks, where are you guys? And, and Adam's answer is very informative. I heard you in the garden, God, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. Our sin results in many things, but the I think the most important one is it results in separation from God. And, and there's, there's two parts to this. First, we're separated from God because of who he is. God is perfect and holy and just. Because of our sin, we're not. So our sin alienates us from God. When we are in sin, we're in rebellion against him. In fact, the worst aspect of sin is not how it affects us, but how it affects God. It is an affront to his nature. It stirs up his wrath. It saddens him. It defames his creation. And ultimately, the cost of sin was God's own son. Second, we're separated from God because of what we do. There's lots that could be said about this and the nature of how sin affects us, but I want to point out one aspect from our text. Adam and Eve responded to God's approach by hiding from him. Have you ever hid from God? Run from him? Try to forget, forget about him. Well, just so you know, it actually doesn't work. Uh, you can go read the book of Jonah. Like Jonah tries. He goes as far as he can, and God's there with him the whole time. But also, it's the worst thing we can do. Hiding from God solves nothing. I mean, he's going to see us anyway. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. But it's also really bad for us. If you aren't a Christian... If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, then the best thing you can do is turn from your sin to God. In Acts 3, the Apostle Peter says, Therefore repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing, sorry, seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. If you are a Christian, then your sins have already been forgiven. Your sinning still hurts God, still hurts you, still hurts others. But Jesus has paid the penalty for your sins on the cross and now sits at the right hand of the Father as our mediator before him. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Let our response to our own sin not be hiding from God, but running to him. Um, I think King David gives us a really good example um, he, he sins with Bathsheba. He commits adultery and murder. That's not the good example, to be clear, okay? But once he acknowledges his sin and he acknowledges that he is guilty, his response is so cool. In Psalm 51, he says, God, create a clean heart for me. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Now, finally, we need to learn to accept responsibility for our actions. This is a big one. If you've been a Christian for a long time, and I've been a Christian for a long time, if you have a lot of experience, the temptation is still to push the blame on other people. Especially if we, if we share the blame with somebody, like, okay, I was responsible, kind of, but somebody else kind of was, we're, we're going we're gonna to be tempted to push it to them. What happens here in Genesis 3? 
God asked the man if he ate from the tree he was commanded not to eat from. The man says, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So then God asked the woman and she says, the serpent, he deceived me, so I ate. The thing is, these are both true answers. They're not lying, but they're passing some of the blame to someone else. Eve says, the serpent, he was a deceiver, so she ate. Adam says, the woman, she gave it to me, so I ate. But did you catch the blame he put on God? He said, the woman you gave to me, God. She's the one. She's the one who tempted me, and that's why I did it. We do it too. We refuse to take the blame. We dodge the consequences. We shame past the people who are supposed to be people we care about. And sometimes we accept that we did something wrong, but we still try to cast blame on God himself for our own actions. Now, at this point in the sermon, especially one about discipline, the expectation would be, okay, like what's a list of stuff I can do? You know, how can I be more self-disciplined, more controlled? Um, but I'm actually not going to do that. Um, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to set this, this stand over here, and it's just going to be me and you. And this is scary because those notes over there, I can't see them anymore. My Bible, the Word of God, it's over there. That there's something about just a stand or a podium that kind of like separates you from the audience. It's kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm separate up here. Um, but I'm not going to do that. It's just going to be us. Okay? And uh, I just want to talk about what is it, what are we supposed to do? And uh, so when we were making this sermon series, uh, we, we sat down as a teaching team and we talked about Man, what do we feel like God's teaching us as individuals? What do we think God's teaching our church? Or even what's he doing in our culture? And John had this really cool idea that he had seen in Isaiah, and that was the catalyst for our series. Okay, and so we came up with these different things like unity, you know, the importance of God's word, and even discipline. And it was trying to decide, like, who's going to teach each week? And it was suggested that, that I teach this week. And I can't know for sure, but I, I, I have to assume and think that maybe it's because people think, oh, well, Daniel, he's kind of disciplined in some stuff. Um, that, that was my takeaway. And it's true. It's true that I am relatively disciplined as a person. Uh, there are things that I do that I have grown in and I have some self-control in. And, you know, I do think that they're really helpful, actually. And some of them are, quite frankly, life-changing. Um, but as I really prayed and thought about this, I was like, I don't think that's actually what our church needs this morning. Um, I would love to sit down with someone individually and talk about, hey, man, here's some maybe ways you can kind of really push into God. I think that would be a cool thing to do. I would enjoy that. But for our church this morning, I think there's actually one thing really simple, really challenging that we need to press into. And that's belief. Do we believe God? Do we trust him? When we, we say we put our life in the hands of God, are we saying that we want him to control our life? Or do we actually really want to control it ourselves? Are we going to believe that he is good, that he loves us, and that his character is without reproach? Uh, let me just share an example for me right now. Like this is, this is current, this is happening. Uh, my wife and I, we're, we're buying a house. Uh, we're under contract. Uh, we're pushing towards that, that day of signing some papers to give our life away, you know, and uh, it's really scary. And it might sound stupid because, I mean, I know a lot of you guys have bought houses, and even if you're not in a place to buy a house, you've had to make decisions about your living situation, right? Like, who am I going to live with next year? Am I going to get a lease? How much is it going to be? You know, do I want to live with this person or that person? I think we've all been in situations like that. 
even if you still live at home, you got to put up with those siblings, you know. And even though it's a normal, typical thing, it's not out there, it's so scary to me. I have had a really hard time trusting God. It's like, I'm going to spend this amount of money. I'm going to, like, go into a 30-year mortgage. That's, that's a commitment, right? Like, that's a lot of responsibility. And then if something goes wrong, i got to pay for it. My landlord won't do it anymore. I can't just call him up like, hey, Rami, uh, you know, we need a new fridge. Okay, you know, i got to go to Lowe's and buy one. Uh, and, and that's really scary to me. And not only does it impact me, it impacts my wife, my lazy cat, any kids we would have in the future, you know, job changes, ministry. It just feels completely overwhelming and all-consuming. But throughout the process, as I just come before Jesus and say, God, like, help me. I don't know why I feel this way. I don't know why I'm so anxious and stressful. Um, he, he's going to be there for me. And am I going to believe that? Am I going to believe, you know what, I don't know what's going to happen in five years, ten years. Lord knows, 30 years, but God is going to be with me. And it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean there won't be problems. It doesn't mean a tornado couldn't come through and rip the house up. That could all happen. Um, but God's still going to be there with me. And I think if we believe that what God says is true, and that we believe that God has good character and is loving, that's going to really change our actions. So if, if when we read the psalmist, and the psalmist says that the word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path, that God's word actually informs about our life and about our culture and about who God is, then we're probably going to spend some time reading it to try to learn those things. If we really believe when Jesus said that God loved the world so much that he sent his only son to die so that we can have everlasting life with him, that's going to really impact our lives. One, it means that God is a loving God and he loves us. And he loves us so much, you so much, me so much, that he sent his son to die for me, his only son, which is the consequence of my sin, not his sin. So that means that God is really loving. But it also means that I can have my hope in him because I have eternity promised to me. No matter what happens with my housing situation, no matter if it falls through at the last moment, I have eternity with him. And that's the kingdom that I'm a, I'm a part of. When Paul tells us to flee from sexual immorality, are we going to take that seriously? Are we going to believe that that is good for us and true? Are we going to kind of tip our toe in there and maybe flirt with it a little bit and like, well, I don't know if flee, maybe I should just kind of like, you know, slowly mosey away. No, like when he says flee from sexual morality, that is what's good for us. And if we take that seriously, that doesn't mean we won't ever be tempted or we won't maybe even sin, but it means we're going to take that seriously and we're going to do something about it. Are we going to believe the Bible when it says that the body of Christ, the church, is a body, like an actual body, and that each of us is a part in that body? And that means that we're different, but we're valuable, and we're worthwhile, and we're made in God's image. And, and that means, one, that we need each other. We need community. A body doesn't just function with my pinky by itself over there is useless, right? We, I need the whole body. I need the brain to make the, the, the pinky work, you know? And so if we're a body, that means we need each other, and then we need community, and we're not supposed to do this by ourselves. But it also means that my part to play, whatever part that might be, is significant and important and needed by the rest of the body. I appreciate my pinky, you know? It may not be as important as the brain, but it's still, it's still good. And in, and in the body of Christ, there is no pinky or brain situation. Like, clearly the brain is better. Every gifting from God is valuable and important. So you might see, oh, okay, someone's teaching. That's really important, which is true. 
Someone has leadership and influence. That's really important. That's also true. But when, in Romans, when Paul talks about the body, I think it's really cool. He says, mercy is a gifting. And, and, the, and the response of someone with mercy is to do so cheerfully. And that might seem really insignificant, but that's not what Paul says. Paul says this is really important. And if you will show mercy with cheerfulness, that's going to impact people for the gospel. And so as I was thinking about all these things, and again, just like, are we going to believe what God says is true? It just brings to mind a father. Um, and this father had a son, and this son was really struggling. Um, and he had a spirit in him that would, like, make him convulse and fall down. And sometimes he would fall in the fire and be burned. Sometimes he would fall in the water and be in danger of drowning. And so this man, this father did not like that, of course. Like, he cared about his son, right? And can you imagine the diligence that father had to have? If he just didn't pay attention to his son for five minutes, his son could fall in the fire and be burned or fall in the water and drown. And so he heard about this guy named Jesus. And Jesus was going around and he was healing people. And he's like, wow, maybe Jesus could help my son. And so he takes his son to Jesus, but Jesus is not there. It's just his disciples. And so he asks his disciples, could you guys heal my son? And his disciples can't. And so, oh my gosh, that's got to be frustrating and disappointing. And, but you know what? Jesus comes. And Jesus has been on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And he's coming down the mountain and the father sees Jesus. And he, and he goes to Jesus and he said, teacher, if you can... Could you please help my son? And Jesus says, if I can, if you just believe, all things are possible. And his response has just always hit me so hard, the father. The father says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And that's my prayer for our church. My prayer for our church is that we will believe. That we will believe that, that God loves us and made us in his image and he sent his son to die for us and his son rose again and now we have eternity with him promised. But then when we don't believe, then we'll just go to God and say, God, help my unbelief. Let's pray. Father God, we want to believe you. We want to know that what your word says is true and that you love us and care for us, Lord, and we want to submit our lives to you. And you know what? If somebody here doesn't want to do that, Lord, I pray that you would change their heart. I pray that you would change my heart, Lord, and that I would trust you and believe in you and not be so worried about a stupid house. I wouldn't be so stressed out about what might happen in the future that I would believe in you. And when the time comes when I struggle with that, I would just turn to you and say, God, help my unbelief. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.